0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. Off scripts, Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us.
1: I'm Robbie Greenfield and alongside me is Chris McCarty and Sona Rapani. Working our way through the years, we'll highlight world events, cultural achievements and the stories that have been forgotten. Let's start with a little story coming out of 2009 that um, I'm going to save what I consider the best for the next story. Okay. Okay. But this one certainly will raise an eyebrow as well. Because have you noticed lately how on Netflix, zombie TV shows are all the rage? This has been going
2: for what, like 10 years now? Because The Walking Dead. Yeah. Then you have Zombieland.
1: And then you've got The Black Summer. I've never even heard of that. Well, it's, it's, it's a very popular show on Netflix at the moment.
2: Yeah, zombies have been having a good run for like a decade, yeah, I would say.
1: I don't see the appeal. Frankly, I do not see the appeal of just these mindless cretins just kind of staggering around. You didn't groaning. get into The Walking Dead? I loved the one with Sean Penn was the one I loved. I um, can't remember what the name of it was. Right. But, so that was the film. I'm sure Raj t- will help us out the, with the that. TV, the TV shows, honestly... No interest. But anyway, 2009, a paper published on how to deal, and this is genuine, with a zombie apocalypse. This is genuine. So Canadian mathematicians got together (laughs) to to tell people how to behave and act and in what measures to take in the event of a zombie apocalypse. And the key is apparently, quote, to hit hard and hit often. (laughs) not to run run
2: run (laughs) because i would have gone with run as far as far away as you can
1: that's it no apparently
2: not no Um, you face them head on according to the mathematicians yeah
1: somebody actually studied um a hypothetical zombie attack and published it in a book on infectious disease (laughs) okay Um, you know what
2: this is this is somebody who's decided at a young age at the age of 19 or something they're going to be a mathematician doing this until they're like 28 or 30 and then realizing they need to break out and do something fun with this knowledge.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, ex- exactly. It just wasn't really panning out for them the yeah. way they... They're
2: just looking <laughs> at all the numbers thinking, nah, 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 nah. Why haven't There's the got to be something yet. else I can do. Yeah. yeah.
1: By the way, the author of this piece wrote, an outbreak of zombies is likely to be disastrous unless extremely aggressive tactics are employed against the undead. <laughs> it is imperative that zombies are... <laughs> Dealt with quickly. Don't let them fester. Whatever you do, don't let those zombies proliferate. Or else, he or she says, I think it's a, probably a he, I will be absolutely gobsmacked if the author <laughs> turns out to be female, or else we are all in a great deal of trouble. Clearly, this is an unlikely scenario, they admit, but possible real-life applications may include allegiance to political parties or diseases with a dormant infection, which is a stretch.
2: Allegiance, allegiance to political parties, and the zombies are going to support a certain party.
1: Well, I think he's probably just trying to stretch it to sort of say this is what this is the justification for me writing this paper. Right. OK.
2: Um,
1: the model focuses on modern zombies, which are very different from the voodoo and the folklore <laughs> zombies. And it takes into account the possibility of quarantine and treatment brackets. Some humans survive, but they must still coexist with zombies. And that's what Black Summer on Netflix is all about, by the way. OK. It's about sort of this coexistence between a, a bunch of humans. Right. And zombies. And it's, it's not not a happy union. I'm, I'm not going to lie Sounds to you. Sounds
2: a lot like True Blood
1: which was Could humans be. coexisting with vampires. Could be, yeah. That that might be along those lines. Yeah. But yeah, it's just not... They don't get along very well. It's fair to say. In no, in no universe, parallel or otherwise, do zombies and humans rub along well. But look, they're trying. That's what's important. That's exactly it. Right. Are you ready for the best story to ever come out of the time capsule okay, on the quirky hear. news? You've
2: been bigging this up all afternoon, <laughs> so I hope
1: it lives up. I have to preface this by confirming that this is indeed a genuine story. I cross-referenced it with a couple of different sources. Okay. I I did my I did my research because at first I couldn't believe it. Okay. But I double checked it, okay, and it is factual. The headline reads as follows French hotel offers guests the chance to live like a hamster, including sleeping in haystacks. Is it as good as i as I touted it to be?
2: I didn't know where this was right. gonna go. I don't know how to react to this for, there's there's a hotel
1: there was this is, is two thousand and nine. I hope but, there's a
2: little hamster wheel in this
1: there is for ninety nine euros a <laughs> night, you can eat hamster. <laughs> you can eat hamster grain, run in a giant wheel. <laughs> And sleep in hay stacks in what is called the hamster villa. This would be honestly. Are if it you back...
2: are you in a cage so people can come watch? You I don't right know. No, no, well. I don't
1: think so. It's just a room that's set up like a hamster cage. Now Maud, Maud, and Sebastian are the first ones to experience how hamsters live. Not afraid at the thought of sleeping in hay or feeding on a hamster fountain and in special grain. It's <laughs> a unique
0: a experience. Hamster
1: fountain. Well, you know the, the you know the little bottles. Oh, like with the yeah. water. Yeah. Yeah. That's how they that would <laughs> take a drink. It's a unique experience. It's something a little bit different. And more than Sebastian said, to become a hamster, eat seeds, change our way of life and come out of our daily routine. Now, the owners, Frederick and Jan, run a company which rents out unusual and bizarre places. And they say the hamster in the world of children is that cuddly animal. Mm-hmm. Often the adults who come here have wanted or did have hamsters when they were small, uh, said falquero And falquero is Jan, that is one of the company owners and they said this dressed as a hamster (laughs) you know if Uh, this place still existed that i uh, would be there i need to check if it does it might it might still exist now the price apparently is soon to go up well, it was in 2009, because yeah. today's hamsters, according to the owners, need Wi-Fi <laughs> and a giant TV screen.
2: I think today's hamsters do indeed need that. I yeah. think that's fair statement. One more random story for you. Okay, let's hear it.
1: Yeah, this is this made me laugh because, of course, you know, 2009, Facebook still still in it's not in its infancy because it launched, I think, in 2004, but like that, it, yeah. it was becoming the kind of global juggernaut yeah. back in 2009. That, that, of course, we all know now. Yeah. And um, while most people were using it for its intended intended Purpose, um, it had to eliminate that year one group that made too strong a political statement. So Facebook groups like, uh, for example, Democrats Suck um, okay. are protected under free speech. Sure. So Facebook can't remove those. But the Bolivian Facebook group Global Collection to hire a sharpshooter to liquidate Evo Morales oh, wow. was considered over the line. Oh, whoa. <laughs> so Facebook liquidated... <laughs> liquidated the group <laughs> instead um, strongly urging Morales to get his mafia up to the 501 members just in case <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it um, some random stories coming across the bows in 2009 what about the films um tell you what we're going to start with my choice for 2009 and it's a quentin tarantino masterpiece it's absolutely brilliant and i don't think it really requires any introduction but here it is
0: my name is lieutenant aldo rey and i need me eight soldiers we're going to be dropped into france dressed as civilians we're going to be doing one thing one thing only killing nazis yes sir
1: Inglorious. Let's just leave it at that. (laughs) Um, And uh, it is a classic Tarantino film in in every respect. The first scene where uh, Colonel Hans Lander, played amazingly by Christoph Waltz, interrogates the French dairy farmer. Um, The build-up to it, the the intensity of it, and the kind of it's all so cordial and yet yeah. there's something so sinister just bubbling up under the surface and it's just an amazing way to set the scene and it's just every single little mini feature within the film is just incredible it's, it's absurd and ludicrous and, <laughs> and just like a, like a revenge fantasy if you like yeah um, but it's it's fantastic
2: I mean it's so good I, you guys talked about it so much that I did eventually watch it oh you watched yeah. it recently I think in the past one or two years I definitely watched it and yeah that first scene that you're talking about maybe the best part of them I mean the movie's amazing it's a great movie but that first scene is really special mm. it's just it's got you on edge from the first moment from the yeah. moment you turn and it on
1: there's only two people that I know that drink that amount of milk Chris McCarty <laughs> and <laughs> Colonel Hans Lander and both of them are unsettling
0: Yeah, absolutely. there's something <laughs> yeah (laughs)
1: extremely extremely unsettling about a guy with a a pint of milk in front of him and I don't (laughs) know what
0: else to say about that other than that it is? Yeah. Uh, Tarantino's become, towards the last few films he's done, an absolute master in building tension. And yeah. he does it in the... There's a bar scene with the number three and the fingers. Yes. yes. yeah. And there's the apple strudel scene, which is also yeah, Christopher. The strudel. It's just so <laughs> That's yeah, strudel. you so good. And by the way, that bar scene you're referring
1: to, where um, Michael Fassbender's character Archie Hickox is undercover, Yeah. Uh, I found out as well that... Um, that was, uh, he did not have to learn the lines or there was no ad-libbing there. He can speak fluent German. And uh, he was speaking because he was born in Germany and German was his first language. So the whole thing about his accent, what ultimately ends up uh, arousing the suspicions of the the Nazi officer in there, that was actually him speaking both English and German, which I thought was pretty impressive. And Eli Roth, who directed such horror films as Cabin Fever and Hostel, he played Donny Donowitz in the movie. Movie, and he actually directed the Nazi propaganda film Nation's Pride, which is seen in Chapter 5 of *Inglorious*. Right. This is the yeah. attention to detail. There's an entire film within a film yeah. here. And it's uh, actually the whole thing lasted over six minutes.
2: Doesn't, Tarantino does this, doesn't he? He does the film within a film. I feel like I've heard or seen of this before where one of those little fake films then got fleshed out into a real film, right?
0: Yeah. Or I'm that, thinking,
2: I can't remember if I'm thinking Tarantino, uh, but... I think death, you're right. Death,
0: was it Death Wish? There's something, yeah. There's yeah. Something, yeah. I'd love to okay. so no, How cool is that
2: though You know to put that That much effort Into doing like A little side film Within yeah, your film That's
0: Brilliant. it So I know your
1: choice was
2: uh, Of course you, you rolled your eyes At me for this one But I went with The reboot of Star Trek Space The final frontier
1: I was staggered to learn that a Star Trek movie up until 2009 had been released every two to three years on average since 1979. That's incredible. This doesn't
2: surprise me. I mean, there is just so much in the Star Trek world. There is so much. And what was cool about this one is they recast, so they took the original characters. They took Kirk, Spock, Scotty, etc. And they recast them with a much younger set of actors Mm. and kind of took you back. Yeah. So they, they did a little bit of origin story behind Captain Kirk, and it's a little bit edgy, you know. He's, I think even in the originals, he's a bit of a ladies' man. Oh, yes. Uh, but you see that once again here, but also just a little bit of a rebellious streak within him. So I think it's just kind of cool how they reimagined this thing that I had watched growing up.
1: Yeah, and J.J. Abrams, of course, a few years later would go on to do the infamous Star Trek Star Wars double.
2: Oh, yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. Because right. he directed this and then yeah, of, course of course he would he would go on to direct the, the kind of what was essentially the Star Wars reboot. Yeah. yeah. The th- third set of trilogy yeah. movies, <laughs> if you like.
2: Yeah. And of Um, course, um, with this Star Trek movie as well, as Roger was pointing out to me today, a bit of it was filmed here in the UAE. Oh, really? I remember meeting somebody who was an extra on the film and she described being sort of dressed up in this big blue alien uniform or costume and being an extra said it was the coolest thing ever.
0: If you're going
1: to be an extra on a film, it's got to be Star Trek or Star Wars, you know, costume. You prefer Star Trek to Star Wars, so?
2: Ooh, I'm going to controversially say yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. a big statement. It is a big I, statement. I, listen,
1: I've sort of turned my nose up at it, and probably, as you pointed out earlier, without really any due cause to.
2: You know what? I do think it's one of those things, though, when you, like, watch it growing up, it kind of captures you. But now, if I go back and try to watch the originals... Mm. I don't think I can sit through an episode. Okay,
1: Producer Rog, earlier today, and now I would say you've got to be emotionally in the right kind of space to, to take in something that's quite hard-hitting, that, yeah. you know, really tugs on the heartstrings. Not when you're tapping away at a keyboard, <laughs> you know, having just arrived at work whilst munching on a salad. But that's exactly what I did a little earlier, You rog.
0: did, because we found out that you hadn't seen the film that I've chosen, uh, we as in Sonal and I, and insisted that you watch the opening scene so anybody that's seen Up will know what we're talking about. Let's take a listen to the trailer. It yeah. is Up. All his life, Carl
1: Fredrickson dreamed of adventure. Today, his adventure is finally taking off.
0: So long, boys! Huh? Ah! Please let me in. No. Oh.
1: Now, according to the website Mental Floss, it says it's nearly impossible for one to think of the movie up and not feel his or her heart explode, which (laughs) is what mine was doing a couple of hours ago. The memory of the film's unforgettable opening sequence alone, the one I watched, is enough to bring a stray tear to even the most hardened moviegoer's eye. (laughs) That's how powerful the Oscar-winning animated
0: film still is. I mean, they could have won it on that opening sequence alone. It's about a boy and a girl, Carl and Ellie, who are both obsessed with this adventure explorer called Charles F. Muntz and then in two minutes in this opening sequence they do Pixar do what some films can't do in three hours, which is just paint the perfect picture of their life together with its ups and downs. It's a sad, sad moment, and yeah, Rob and yeah, I uh, do yeah, apologise. Yeah, yeah, it's, remi- it. it's a reminder that life is desperately sad.
1: <laughs> and there I was at three thirty in quite a chipper mood, actually, um, <laughs> just just prepping for the show and looking forward to another afternoon on off scripts. And there I am contemplating my existence. You looked a little skeptical at first
2: when I put it in front of you for the first sort of fifteen to twenty well, seconds. Was, you yeah. thought, "What am I watching?" I thought. He's not going to sit through this whole thing.
1: I knew it was serious when you used your phone stand. I was like, blimey, this is really serious. You're not just going to pass the phone. I've got to watch it like it's... But
0: but it's testament to how good that is because how many times have you said, you've got to watch this, you've shown somebody, you've shown your friend it, and then there's that awkward bit where you can tell they're not into it. I just, out of the corner of my eye, watched Rob's Body Language, and you were totally drawn into it. Yeah, I was initially sceptical, but then, yeah. yeah, it got me. It yeah. got yeah. me. Um, but, no, actually, I've got a little stat
1: on that particular montage. It was inspired by a bunch of strangers' home movies, oh, apparently. Wow. Brilliant. While some of the moments in Carl and Ellie's life were pulled from the filmmakers' own lives, they also did some research into the lives of other people. Strangely, we got a couple of home movies from the Internet. Michael Giacchino has a collection that I think he ordered from eBay. Um <laughs> And they told this to the L.A. Times. Said, we had no idea who the people in them were, but we'd watch their lives progress and piece them together. We'd know, oh, now there's a new kid in the picture. What happened to that person? I guess they must have moved away. It was strangely compelling. Wow.
2: wow. The fact that this is based off real lives just changes that so much more, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. It's also,
2: you can buy people's old home movies. On eBay? Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Anything for sale these days. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Yeah. So this is the same director that did Soul this year as well, and he's just such a great... He's really strict about story and how the story develops. Pete Doctor is his name. He's brilliant. Okay. Soul is
1: great as well. And you reckon yeah. I like should watch the whole thing except just the two minutes at the beginning? Definitely watch it. You won't be disappointed. All it's right. great. Okay, I'll put that on the to-do list. I've got through a couple that we've covered yeah. lately. No Country for Old Men, In Bruges last night. Brilliant. Great film. So, yeah, it's been quite a treasure trove, the time captain for movies. And uh, 2009, I checked this, actually, because I was under the impression that uh, Avengers Endgame was the new highest-grossing movie of all time. But apparently not. According to Box Office Mojo and Wikipedia, Avatar, from 2009... Still holds that title. It's fifty million dollars ahead of Endgame. Maybe after adjustments, maybe Endgame was projected to surpass it, or maybe this is due to some sort of royalties, or I'm not sure. But Avatar with two billion eight hundred and forty seven million two hundred and forty six thousand two hundred and three dollars. Wow. That is fifty million dollars ahead of second place Avengers Endgame. And here's the little trailer for you
0: concept is to drive these remotely controlled bodies called avatars they're grown from human dna mixed with dna of the natives marine in an avatar body that's a potent mix you get me what i need i'll see to it you get your legs back your real legs hell yeah sir looks like you this is your avatar
2: just relax and let your mind go blank it shouldn't be hard for you
1: this film completely passed me by. I've never seen it.
2: You've never seen Avatar?
1: No. Wow. No. And I just kind of. It was one of those ones where I just don't really have any interest in it.
2: But it was one of those ones at the time that, like, you couldn't miss it. I mean, it was. You know, there's that huge. A moment of Titanic where everybody had watched it three times. Avatar was one of those movies that everybody was talking about. I mean it was so sensational.
1: We've had a message in actually to say Avatar did a re-release to get ahead of Avengers. Ah, right, yeah. Did
0: not yeah. know that. That's, That's great info. I've just been looking and it looks like Avengers Endgame opening weekend was better and it was 3D screening so it's all little provisos and things like so that. So Avatar's still the number one? Avatar's still number one. Yeah. Wow.
1: Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So are you, were you a fan of the film, So
2: I remember loving it at the time. I don't remember Remember it that well now, but we were talking about how it was such a work of a passion for James Cameron. He's yeah. been toiling at it for years, and you were he talking had me the, he had the he idea, had the, for the a long story time.
0: idea of about thirty years before the technology caught up to it, and he was able to do it once 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 he was happy with the technology. That's when he put it into production,
2: and now he's working on the sequels.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
2: that'll be interesting to Interestingly, see what comes
1: out. The composer, James Horner, was faced with an interesting challenge when crafting Avatar's score. He had to incorporate instruments that didn't exist. Mm. And he therefore Brilliant. had to, he said he was trying to create sounds using a synthesizer and a, and a keyboard, essentially. And um, whenever he would create a sound, he would say that it actually, that he would then later discover some weird instrument that he wasn't familiar with that it sounded just like. So, for example, a bagpipe or a Chinese flute or something from a Scandinavian country yeah. that is, that's not mainstream, but that, he'd be trying to create all these very exotic sounds.
2: That's kind of an impossible task. Create a sound that nobody's ever yeah, heard exactly. before.
1: How
0: creative yeah. have you got to be to do that?
1: And do loads of it as well. We need seven different in- instruments. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Uh, 2009 also saw the release of The Hangover. Of course it did. Um, Todd Phillips' movie. It grossed $400 million at the worldwide box office, an unprecedented amount for any original movie, but especially for an R-rated comedy. If you want to go to Vegas without me? That is totally cool. What are you talking
0: about? Well, you know, Phil and Stu they're your buddies and it's your bachelor party and those two love you.
2: Boys and their bachelor parties,
0: it's gross. It is gross. I just wish your friends were as mature as you. They are mature, actually. You just have to get to know them better yeah. <laughs> uh, what happened last night
1: oh dear i mean honestly so it, it did it was a great concept in the three movies they probably did too too many
0: yes <laughs> definitely uh, yeah
1: uh, the one thing that i found out that was that was uh made me laugh was that the cast agreed to part three on the proviso that there would be no part four. <laughs> they were like, we'll do you a third. <laughs> But that's it, because the condition for the Hangover series returning for a third movie was we're ending the franchise. Right. Bradley Cooper had kind of moved on to bigger and better things. Oh, yeah. um, even Ed Helms and, and Zach Galifianakis. Ed Helms was busy with The Office, obviously, and uh, Galifianakis was was obviously being approached by various other roles and, and comedies and what have you. So
2: between two ferns, right?
1: That, between two ferns, that's yeah. Brilliant, yeah. which yeah. is an odd an odd show, wasn't it? But uh, it could have had a completely different cast. The Hangover. Um, Because Alan was offered to Jack Black, but he turned it down. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal, Jonah Hill, Thomas Hayden Church, all considered before Zach Galifianakis was finally cast. Paul Rudd turned down the role of Phil before Bradley Cooper was cast. And Seth Rogen was considered to play Stu before it went to Ed Helm. So it could have been a totally different cast appearing for The Hangover. I
2: feel like Paul Rudd could have done a good replacement for Bradley Cooper. But, you know, Galifianakis is the one you can't replace. Because Jack Black is just too... In your face and yeah. loud, yeah, yeah I agree. it's that kind Black. of quiet yeah. awkwardness of Zach Galifianakis that makes that movie Agreed.
0: perfectly. Agreed. Todd Phillips, as well, is uh, director of Joker, so he's moved on to different things as well.
1: And of course, Mike Tyson popped up; his That's Tiger, right. as well, made a, an appearance oh, yeah. in the film. It was—it's a very funny film the first time you see it. It, it really is. It's a—it's a very original concept, and yeah, they just—they got sucked into the the sequels, which were just the law of diminishing returns, yes. really as the digital revolution was continuing in music there was just a huge discrepancy between what was being put out commercially and what was being produced away from the kind of mainstream on-air radio stuff or at least on the mainstream radios commercial radio stations where there was this kind of burgeoning indie scene and all these kind of bands like the xx and grizzly bear and the animal collective and all those kind of groups were were coming through but it was a really poor time for commercial music. I mean, I was looking back through it today, and l- listen, I mean, to each their own. Some people must, some people might like this music, and that's absolutely fine, but I just felt like 2009 was the kind of, and I don't know how it, I don't really follow it anymore, so, so I'm kind of, I'm not really sure in which direction it's gone, but from all the people we've spoken to, it had become extremely algorithmic, yeah. and it had become extremely, you know, um, what was the word? Uh, kind of, uh, monotonous in, in its sort of in its approach and its in its lack of real creativity.
2: And I do think there is something to that statement because I like pop music unabashedly. So I like indie music. I like pop music. But the pop music I was looking at of 2009 was just so dire. Mm. It was not great. Mm. Time for, like, commercial mainstream music, I think. Yeah,
1: yeah and it's in, as we've put this feature together, the sources by where we're getting the music has changed as well. So, you know, it was in the 90s. It was quite easy just to Google the best songs from that year, and nice. they'd all come up, and you'd like it would be there, there wasn't much in the way of alternative music right. in the 1990s but there was very inventive very original very fresh sounding different kind of genres that were, that were finding their way onto the airwaves yeah whereas by 2009 it had been segregated there was the kind of independent stuff and then there was the commercial stuff and they'd gone off in different tangents
2: and what you were saying about the access about being able to get themselves out there so I picked Phoenix for, okay. my, for, for my music pick of this year let's
1: take a listen I believe that's
2: 2009. Yeah, I know, me too. So that's the song 1901. And just leading off what you were saying, it was originally released as a free download from the band's website. So they just popped a website up. It was originally a free download that you could get. Wow. It was only issued as a retail single when it became really popular. And that particular song, uh, the frontman of the group, Thomas Mars, said, it's a song about Paris. I didn't know they're a French band also until today, but right. it's a French indie okay. band. Okay. Um, it's a song about Paris. Paris in 1901 was better than what it is now. <laughs> it's still nice, but 1901 was better. <laughs> this is a fantasy about Paris.
1: There you have it. Yeah. Simple as that. Sometimes when you figure out the meanings behind these songs, yeah. you're like, it can't really? be about that. But, yeah. Okay. Apparently it is. Rog, you've gone for what exactly?
0: I've gone for Doves and Kingdom of Rust. What process behind that, Rod? So, I mean, I loved Doves growing up. I yeah. got every one of their albums and this one was kind of like they were doth the cap to everything they'd done before. Even in that 20 second clip we just played, you can hear absolutely everything that Doves did through their career. You know, they, they pretty much played it safe like that all the way through, but I just loved them. I loved his voice. He's a really alternative kind of front man. He just, just looks like a guy you would meet on the street driving a van. Maybe, yeah. you know, Not that there's anything wrong with that, but he's, he's a rock star. and um, Yeah, I, I just find their jangly Indie Manchester scene music, mm. just beautiful. This was the last album I thought that they'd released, but then I just googled it. They released one last year, so I'll have to go oh, on and have check have that check out.
1: It out. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's uh, that's musical uh, research for you. Yeah, um, I forgot to pick one, unfortunately, but I, I did put a few other songs <laughs> in there. And this is a track from the debut album released by Florence and the Machine, the recording name of London-based alternative pop artist Florence Welch and her backup band. The Dolby. interesting backstory to this before she'd ever recorded any music welch met a lady called isabella summer an aspiring hip-hop dj from suffolk and they had access to a studio in in london they began working together and they started challenging each other to write a song in 10 minutes or make music that didn't involve guitar bass or program beats and the first song they co-wrote was that one
0: Wow. wow that
2: is so cool
1: Yeah, great fact. So, um, uh, where else are we going to go? Arctic Monkeys were kind of—I wouldn't say they were on the wane—but the the first album they brought out was critically acclaimed, and they were still producing some pretty good music. But perhaps without the fanfare of that Mm. debut album, this is a good song though, and it's got a great story. This is Alex Turner searching four different pubs for his ex, Mm. but in each one he finds only her doppelgangers. (laughs) Arctic Monkeys really? there with Cornerstone. Good song, that. I really, yeah, it's a bit good. different, yeah. not as high energy as their kind of early stuff. Uh, Mumford and Sons were kind of the go to festival band that oh, year.
2: Absolutely everywhere.
1: And they were everywhere. They're a London based folk quartet. They formed a couple of years prior in 2007. Marcus Mumford, Country Winston, what a name. Ben Lovett, <laughs> and Ted Duane. And this anthemic number was the lead single from their debut album, Sigh No More. It was not- No chance of going to Glastonbury and not seeing Mumford & yeah. Sons in some capacity yeah. for about four years between 2009 <laughs> yeah. and 2013. It's good um, festival music, though. It's what yeah. kind of thing you want to hear. That's it, yeah. Uh, one final one. i got to play this. Dizzy Rascal. Here it is. Bonkers. Bonkers. Some
2: people think I'm bonkers, but i just think free.
0: And I'm just living my life, there's nothing crazy but me.
1: I think this would have been your pick. Went straight in at number one yeah. on the UK chart. It, was, it, it, it would not have been my pick, so no, it's fair to say. What are we feeling about 2009 so far? A bit meh. A bit meh. After the, is that fair? After the highs of 2008, some good
0: films. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. There were some good films. Well, I'm Roger's well right. worth it. The, the Hamster Hotel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean. And it's it is, not meh. <laughs>
2: it is maybe one of the best years you've had for quirky
1: stories. I Agreed but that's not going to prop up a time capsule, yeah. is it?
2: Yeah, you need <laughs> really solid movies and music, I think. Yeah, that's, that's a mere aperitif.
1: I like the films. Films are decent. The music was a bit, not, not quite as strong as mm-hmm. a couple of years prior, and certainly last year was, was very strong as well. So, can sport redeem it? Because 2008, as we discussed last week, an epic, an all-time great year in sports. 2009, I'm going to say, doesn't hit the same heights, but okay. wasn't bad nonetheless. In football we saw the greatest club side quote unquote potentially that's an opinion to ever grace the game emerge pep guardiola's barcelona team of kind of 2008 I suppose it first emerged and then it, it, it rose to glory in 2009 and then proceeded to dominate the game for that three-year period. They won the Champions League in 2009 and 2011. Somehow, Jose Mourinho's Inter beat them in 2010 against, against all expectations. And here are the highlights from that final against Manchester United in the Champions League.
0: Brief exchange with Messi and Iniesta sees a gap. Samuel Eto's turned his man and Eto has squeezed it past Edwin Van Barcelona lead thanks to their number nine. And Xavi onto the head of Messi. That should do it for the flag.
1: Quite a rare-headed goal for Messi in that final.
2: Do you agree with that claim that it's the best club team of all certainly time?
1: Certainly the best team I've ever seen. Mm. And, and I would say that the, some of the performances, many of them against Arsenal in the Champions League, <laughs> but uh, certainly the performance at Wembley against Man United in in the 2011 final is, is kind of football that, yeah, I can't remember. I can't recall seeing a team so consummate as that. They were just exceptional, and they had... Incredible talent in every area of the pitch. And, you know, you're you're talking about arguably one of the greatest players of all time playing just ahead of, if not the greatest, of, of maybe the best ever midfield trio. Uh, and then you've got um, the, the fact that in this particular final Thierry Henry was was really a supporting act <laughs> I mean the great Thierry Henry was was just one of so many, the, the lineup in that final Victor Valdez in goal Silvino playing on left back uh, Carlos Puyol, the great Carlos Puyol the Spanish right back with Gerard Piquet and Yaya Torre playing at the centre of defence, Barca, re- Barca seldom called upon their defence because they monopolised possession so much yeah. no team really ever got a chance to attack them when they were at their best because they just never conceded possession in a position where any other team could any opponent could, could hurt them and in that midfield Sergio Busquets Xavi and Andre Iniesta were just the perfect uh, Alex wow. Ferguson the Man United manager called them the passing carousel <laughs> so you just never you got on the carousel and you never saw the ball it would yeah. just whir around you <laughs> uh, it, you know uh, you know, infinitely just, just they, they, could, they could never dispossess so then you had Lionel Messi playing alongside Thierry Henry and Samuel Eto'o wow. up front and it was just it was a fantastic team um, and that midfield three stayed together with Messi until the end of the 2015 season when Xavi finally departed he called it quits um, and in the interim players like Zlatan Ibrahimovic David Villa Neymar of course Suarez they were deployed in attacking roles and then in defence you had the likes of Pedro Jordi Alba uh, Javier Mascherano Dani Alves all great players in their own right um, it was just a fine fine team it hardly it. seems fair it doesn't yeah. yeah no it doesn't and it was yeah it it was Pep Guardiola's kind of, yeah, it was his piece de resistance. He's never, he's never won the Champions League subsequently, actually. His mm. best chance was last season when Man City lost to Chelsea. But those two wins in 2009-2011 take some beating. Uh, 2009 was also the year that we saw the incredible peak of the greatest sprinter who's ever lived. A year after his Olympic heroics at the World Championships in Berlin, Usain Bolt did the unthinkable in both the 100 and the 200 metres. Take a listen.
0: Bolt, Gay, Powell, 4, 5 and 6. They're away. Terrific start by Daniel Bailey. Usain Bolt, though, getting into his running. Here he comes. Usain Bolt, challenged by Tyson Gay. Usain Bolt, two clear metres. Tyson Gay in second place. And in third place, the suffer power. 9.58! Smashing the world record. Unbelievable! He's done it again! A year later writing the world record again. That is the most incredible piece of
1: sprinting the world has ever seen. That was 9.58, an absurd world record that will still stands, obviously, and will take some beating. It will probably stand for many years, maybe even decades to come. Insane. But that particular championships, he was not done. <laughs> he went ahead and he topped it in a scintillating 200-meter race but away safely this time and here's the big man already up on Edward already up on Clark the rest of the field are being left
2: behind fast run by Mullings and Spearman inside him but here comes the great man Hussein Bolt charging down the straight as best they can the other men are trying to follow it. Mullings and Spearman Spearman finishing fast Bolt wins Bolt oh, wins and Bolt has smashed his own world record just as he did in Beijing he gets world records in both the 100 metres the 200 meters. It was 1930
0: in Beijing. It's 1920 here. We dare to dream, and he has provided an epic moment once again here in Berlin.
1: I couldn't help notice the top comment on the YouTube video on this run. It says Bolt was socially distancing 11 years before it was a thing. <laughs> Uh, The record, 19.19. That was the record. The previous record, incidentally, before Bolt broke it in Beijing with 19.3, was 19.32, set by Michael Johnson at the Atlanta Olympics in 1996. Bolt trimmed over a tenth of a second (laughs) off that record. That's extraordinary.
2: It's, well, uh, it's crazy to even conceive of a tenth of a second. Yeah. Because it is extraordinary, isn't it? But it's hard to even conceive of well, a tenth of a second passing that that could be a significant amount of time. But, but of but course it is. It is. I mean, yeah. it,
1: would be, it would be the equivalent of someone breaking the marathon record by four minutes. Yeah. You know, yeah. it would just yeah. be so absurd, so, so
0: far ahead of anyone else who's ever done it. And, well, uh,
1: that's
0: on, it. On that top bend... On, on his day, he's majestic. He's run, I just loved watching him. I could watch him all the time.
1: And it turns out that was, that was as good as it got. Yeah. I mean, extraordinary stuff. But 2009 was peak Usain Bolt. And it was also the year that Roger Federer completed the career Grand Slam after a rare opportunity was presented to him at Roland Garros.
0: the French Open for the first time in his career and in addition must surely
1: be regarded now as the greatest male player of all time. That was true then, certainly not true now because there are plenty of, well, there's two other contenders yeah. to the crown of the greatest of all time. There are is three men on 20 major championships and Djokovic might even be adding a 21st if he wins the US Open and completes his own calendar Grand, grand Slam uh, a little later on this month or next month, I should say, in September but uh, Robin Soderling was the man that gave Roger the chance he beat he upset Rafa Nadal Roger's nemesis on the clay of Roland Garros um, Roger had actually made it to the three previous finals and he was given the chance with, with Nadal out to go all the way and it was actually Sodling that he, that he played in the final and ended up winning 6-1 7-6 6-4 so Roger completing the career Grand Slam and that was his collection complete the four Grand Slam trophies he only ever won one French Open
2: yeah, it's interesting Is that, that right. the discussion of greatest of all time happening in 2009 and still ongoing today.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, what an, right? amazing, what an era. That, what that's what an as era.
2: early as it was called for him.
1: Yeah. It was called then, but I mean, everyone a couple of years prior to that had been saying, well, no one's going to beat Pete Sampras's yeah. record yes. of 14 majors for ages. And then three players have done it in 10 years. And it's uh, tennis has just been spoiled rotten these last uh, couple of decades with, with Federer, Nadal, Djokovic coming through and... Um, We wait to see if anyone will be following in their footsteps, but it certainly doesn't look like it right now. Um, That's 2009. Um, Decent. Decent. Solid.
0: Those Bolt records make it very
1: decent. Yeah. Yeah. Roger, Roger was a fan, so no one moved. You
2: know, 2009 was solid is a good way to put it, but it was no 2008 off scripts, Time Capsule, rating and
1: ranking the years that have shaped us. Thank you for listening to The Time Capsule. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and please do, if you've got a moment, give us a review.
0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today.